Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30. First Samuel chapter 30, we're really uh, looking at all of chapters 27 through 31 this week and next week, but we'll be focused particularly on chapter 30, and that's the, the text that we'll read before I preach today. First Samuel 30, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag... On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor where, they, where those who were left uh, behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bor-Ashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we want to pause once again for just a moment and ask that you would help us to see you in the pages of your word. Father, we recognize this morning that there are many different types of hearts present in this room today. Some with hearts like rocky ground, just weighted down by the cares of this life, the trials, waiting on a a report from the doctor, waiting on an appointment, waiting to hear about a loved one, hearts weighted down with grief, with doubt. There are many hearts who are choked by the cares of this world. They are just enamored with the things of this life, and that is preventing your word from taking root. Others have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin like a worn path. And the word falls on those hearts and is plucked away by the enemy. And then there are others with well-tilled soil in their hearts who want to receive the word and cause it to grow. And Father, I, I pray that you would till the ground of our hearts, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the teaching of your word today. And that all who are here, who are far from you, all who are enslaved to Satan, all who are captured to do his will would be rescued by your son, Jesus Christ, through the preaching of your word and in the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sun is high. The dry air, unforgiving. I can only fit part of my body under the shade of the little broom tree that's been my home for the last three days, and escaping the scorching rays has become increasingly difficult as it becomes harder and harder to move. After a terrible fever and now three days without any food or water, my skin is clinging to my bones, my joints are throbbing, my head is swimming. Terrifying visions dance around the corners of my mind. I'm dying. 
Just days before, I'd been accompanying my master on another raid, cooking, breaking camp, caring for animals, tending to the fires, an endless myriad of other thankless tasks has been my lot yet again as my master and more than a thousand of his violent countrymen terrorized the countryside and the people living in the Negev. They had battled the Carathites and the Calebites, and then they moved westward to Philistia, where they found a whole city bereft of its entire garrison of soldiers. Not a single man who could wield a sword was there to defend the city. When the wives of the steward of the city saw this murderous horde, they surrendered immediately. I was tasked with collecting valuables from the houses and packing these treasures onto the mules and donkeys while the soldiers rounded up this fresh crop of women and crying children to be sold in the slave markets further south. It was a windfall for my master and his friends and a disaster for their victims as they braced themselves for the unspeakable terrors that surely awaited them in the coming weeks. It reminded me of the day years before when these same soldiers had invaded my village in Egypt. After packing, we mounted camels and fled with the spoils of the raid. Not long after leaving, I began to feel unwell. I tried to hide it. Slaves live a hard life. We're driven to the point of exhaustion. We often reach a breaking point. Those who fall ill quickly become a liability, especially during travel. But after just a few hours, I I was so sick, I was unable to even stay upright on my mount. My master took one look at me, and after seeing the pale skin and the beads of sweat and the sunken eyes, he rode over to me and kicked me off the animal and left me to die in the dirt. They didn't even leave me any water. So here I lay, and what can I say? There's no use complaining. This is the way the world is, right? The mighty trample on the weak. The proud grind down the lowly. If there are any gods out there, they're no better. They're just more powerful versions of the same tyrants who had captured me as a young boy from my family. They don't care what happens to me. But then I hear something. At first I think it's another hallucination, but it sounds like it's getting closer. I hear men talking. It sounds like a whole host of them. Soon one approaches, kneels down, shades my eyes from the blazing sun. He lifts my head and gives me a drink of cool water. One of the others hands him a crust of bread. He gives it to me and waits as I slowly bite and chew and swallow. I watch him as my strength begins to return and I start to feel myself again. This man is the leader A young man, but I can tell he's seen his share of battle. His eyes are sad but hopeful. What will this warrior be like? Like the cowardly men who gave up me and my mother to the Amalekites years ago? Like the tyrants that I had served for the last several years, violent and foul? Or will this man be different? On a hot, dry afternoon in the 10th century B.C., a young Egyptian man, a slave, nearly dead, encountered David, the king after God's heart, God's king. And what he found in David, who happened to be at just about the lowest point of his life, was something altogether different from the tyrants that he had encountered in his life up to that point. 
Those glorious characteristics of God's king are on full display for us in today's text. As we begin to make our descent uh, on this series in 1 Samuel, and the landing gear is coming out, and we can see the runway off in the distance, we've got just two more weeks uh, to get through this book, it's important that we remember what this whole journey is about. What is 1 Samuel about? It's about the kind of king that God wants for his people, and in particular, it is about the ways that God's king is altogether different from the kings that you would expect to see in the world. We expect the strong to be victorious, but God brings victory through the weak. We expect the proud to be exalted, but God lifts up the lowly. We expect the king to look good on the outside, but God looks not on the outside, he looks at the heart. We expect that impossible circumstances will result in inevitable destruction, but through God's surprising rule, we see him time and time again reverse the fortunes of the barren and the destitute and how he gains triumph over his enemies. And in this passage, we're going to see all of the above. It's like we can go back to the beginning of the book. You remember the beginning of the book, the situation that Hannah found herself in? Barren, destitute, hopeless, oppressed by a rival. She prays to God, and in her desperation, he meets her and answers her prayer. And it's like we could superimpose the song of Hannah, her experience in the first two chapters of the book on this chapter as well. Just like Hannah is able to rejoice in God's salvation, David is going to see his own people rescued by God as well. Because this is who God is. This is what God's king is like. This is God's king. God's king will rout the enemy and rescue the enslaved. That's the whole idea behind this passage. God's king will rout the enemy and rescue the enslaved. And that's good news today for anybody who is distressed, anybody who is defeated, anybody who is shackled to life-dominating sin because God is going to send just such a king to us today. And this passage shows us four ways that this plays out in the life of David. First of all, notice with me that God's king is strengthened by God's promise. God's king is strengthened by God's promise. At the beginning of chapter 30, David's life is just about as bad as it can possibly be. If there were a competition for who has the hardest life, the most difficult trials, David could win that competition hands down. I mean, think about what's happened. In chapter 27, a passage that we haven't read publicly, but you might have read it on your own uh, throughout the week, Uh, David comes to this point of desperation where he realizes, I'm not welcome in Israel anymore. If I'm staying in the land of Israel, Saul's going to keep chasing me around. The only thing that I have left to do is to leave Israel. I'm going to go over to the land of the Philistines, and that's what he does. He goes over and seeks refuge uh, by ingratiating himself to Achish, king of Gath. By the way, Gath, that's the place that Goliath came from. So David is so desperate, he has to go find refuge in the city of his enemies. And Achish is just glad to have someone with David's leadership abilities in his back pocket. So he takes David and he sets him up as sort of like the sheriff or the steward or the the overseer of this small town in the south of Israel called Ziklag. So David and his 600 men and all their families moved to Ziklag, far to the south. 
And he begins to clear out the gangs and the mobs in the south of the promised land. There's all these raiding bands and marauders uh, out and about. And David takes these 600 men and he begins to go out and, and destroy these uh, bastions of crime and, and, and oppression. Uh, that's better for him and his family. It's better for the Philistines. It's better for the land of Israel. But Achish actually thinks that what David's doing is going out and raiding the cities of the land of Judah. So Achish believes that he's actually, uh, he's, he's become a stench to his own people. And, and so he decides to make David his personal bodyguard. And he invites him and his men to this mustering of all the Philistine troops far to the north because they're getting ready to push into Israel and take out uh, the land of Israel altogether. Well, David goes on and he joins them up there. This is when Saul is crawling out of his skin and he goes and consults a medium. He's upset because he, he knows the Philistines are about to go to battle against him. David's on the other side of that. And so David goes to this great gathering of troops. We don't know what he would have done if he were asked to attack his countrymen in Israel, but we don't get the chance to find out because Achish's colleagues, they, uh, they all gather together, all the troops are there, and they look and they see there's David with his men. And these guys say, Achish, that's David. You can't bring David into this battle against Israel. David is an Israelite. You know, what's the one way that David could earn back favor with the king of Israel, wouldn't it be with our heads? And so these men who are colleagues of Achish, they say, we're not going to battle with David. You've got to send him home. And so Achish goes back to David and he breaks the news. He says, sorry, David, I, I trust you. You've been such a good servant to me. You've been a great vassal, but these other guys don't trust you. They don't want you marching with us into battle. And so he says, David, unfortunately, you, you're going to have to go home. And so David takes his men, his 600 men, and they have to march the uh, three-day journey back to Ziklag, and uh, so he does that. He, he marches back to Ziklag, and as he gets close to his new hometown where his wives, his children are living, he sees smoke rising from the horizon. He gets closer. Ziklag is on fire. It's burning. He gets there. He learns all the buildings have been destroyed, all the livestock, all the people have been taken away. So think about what this means for David. David is politically isolated. Saul's chased him into the land of his enemies. His enemies don't trust him. He doesn't have anywhere that he can go. Achish just told him that he's not welcome in the war council of the Philistines. He's completely politically alone. He's physically exhausted. He's just marched three days to the north and then three days right back again of hard marching. His family is gone. He doesn't know if they're dead or alive or what's been done to them. And so he just kneels down and weeps. And all these 600 men, they just kneel down and they weep until they have no more strength to weep. And everything that made life worth living, everything in the present that made them enjoy being alive was gone. That was taken from them. And then to top it all off, the men start to grumble. David, what were you thinking? But what, what made you take all of the fighting men of the entire city and, and drag us up north where we were completely useless to those people and then drag us back again. Six days gone where our wives and our children were exposed to the enemy. Why did we do this? Why did you, why, what kind of a leader are you? And, and remember, these are ruffians of Israel. These are the people who had had a hard life who had seen things, who had done things that they were ashamed of. And so in their desperation, they revert back to an old and violent solution. They begin to conspire and say, let's stone David. 
I mean, you can't get lower than this. But notice what David does. Verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in I am, the self-existent one, the one who revealed himself to Moses. I am his God. That is, this God who reveals himself in the pages of Scripture is David's God. And when he is at his lowest point, he strengthens himself in his relationship with this God. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God? Well, in the first place, notice what he didn't do. Notice that David didn't do what we would probably do. He didn't try to run away. He didn't try to escape. He didn't try to start over and and avoid the consequences of the situation in which he was in. That's how we often deal with distressing circumstances. We run away, don't we? We say, I don't want to think about that. And, And even if we don't do so physically, we are still physically present in our lives. We run away mentally. We run away spiritually. We turn on the TV. We get out the phone and we start scrolling because we don't want to face life, right? David didn't do that. He didn't run away. He didn't retaliate. David didn't lash out against his men like he might have felt justified in doing. He didn't react rashly like we so often do when our backs are against the wall, making things worse than they already were. I mean, this is what we tend to do. When when we're at a low point, we either run away or we retaliate against the people in our lives or we react rashly. We do something that we should not do that's very unwise, that's very foolish because we're just reacting to the situation. David didn't do any of those things. What did he do? He does two things instead. First of all, he brings his distress to God And then secondly, he remembers God. He brings his distress to God, and then he remembers God. Here's what I mean. Have you ever spent any time reading through the Psalms? If you were to do this, this is another great uh, Bible reading plan. If you read one Psalm a day, uh, you'll get through all the Psalms in six months. You could get through the Psalms twice in a year if you read one Psalm a day. But have you ever done that? Have you ever really read through the Psalms and thought about the circumstances and the emotional state of affairs in which the psalmist often finds himself. David wrote many of these psalms. What's he doing in many of these psalms? He's strengthening himself in the Lord by bringing his distress to God and by remembering God. Here's what I mean. He takes everything he's dealing with, everything that's going on in his life, and he says, I haven't really processed this yet. I haven't figured it out yet. Yet, I don't know all the solutions. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. But here's what's going on in my life. God, here it is. That's not venting. That's not him just getting it off his chest. It's, It's bringing it to God and just saying, God, I don't know what to do with all these things. I don't know what to do with my emotions. I don't know what to do with my circumstances. I'm going to put them in front of you because you are the God who is able to do whatever you want to do, and I trust that you're good, and I trust that you're holy, and that you're righteous, and you're going to know what to do. So he pours out his complaint to the Lord, and then he remembers the Lord, and you can see this in the Psalms. He remembers God's character. He remembers God's mighty acts that he's done in the past. He remembers God's promises. He says, God, you're merciful and gracious. You've rescued me before. You saved me from Saul when he had the priest killed. You you rescued me from the Philistines the first time I was with Achish, king of Gath. You delivered me from the lion and from the bear. You delivered me from the hand of Goliath, the son of the serpent. I remember your promises. 
God, I remember you promised that I would sit on the throne of Israel. That's something you said. And when I think about who you are, your trustworthy character, and when I think about the things that you've done in the past, how you've saved so many times, how you've answered prayer so many times, and when I think about the promises that you've made to me, that strengthens me. That's what David did. He strengthened himself in God. Before his circumstances changed, before he knew where his family was, before he even knew that it was the Amalekites who had captured them, he found strength in the Lord as God because he took his distress and he brought it to God and he remembered who God is. This is the way of God's king. He is strengthened by the promises of God. This, but by the way, isn't this what Jesus did in the garden? I mean, David is not the only anointed king of God who is in danger of being killed by his own people, right? Jesus was in the same circumstance, and God's, uh, uh, the, the people of God, Jesus' countrymen, they're gathering around him, they're, they're looking for him to arrest him, and there he is in the garden, and what does he do? He brings, he strengthens himself in his father. And folks, this is what we need to do. Where do you get your strength What about the people you listen to, the people you follow? Is it from your power over others? Is it from your wealth? Is it from your good circumstances? Is it from your good looks? Is it from the fact that you can figure it out? Or do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? I just wonder who's here today, who's in a circumstance maybe a little bit like what David found himself in, maybe not as extreme, uh, maybe more extreme. And you don't know what the outcome's going to be. What I'm saying is David sets a good example for us because he strengthens himself in his God. Not when things happen that are good, but before God shows us the way out. How do you do that? Bring your distress to God. Remember God. This is who God's king is. God's king is strengthened by God's promises. Secondly, God's king is steered by God's providence. God's king is steered by God's providence. Uh, David immediately recognizes that he needs to find guidance from the Lord, so he calls the priest over and he says, you know, let's pray. Uh, In Old Testament times, the king and the priest, they had the ability to consult the Lord using what's called the Urim and Thummim, uh, and and they would ask God specific questions and God would, would answer, and in David's case, he does answer. He says, go, overtake the raiders, you'll be successful. So David goes, and again, we have more information at this point than David did. Think, put yourself in David's shoes. We know it's the Amalekites who took the people. We know that it's probably going to work out pretty well because it's in the Bible. But David didn't know that at the time. He didn't know which way to go. He probably had a few camel prints in the sand to follow. That was it. And so we could see the big picture. All he was able to see was just the prints on the ground, maybe a couple of personal effects dropped here and there along the way. He just had to move forward and trust the Lord. And so they walk and they walk and they walk 15-plus miles to the Basor Brook with very little to go on, the weight of grief just hanging on them, all this after six straight days of marching to the north and marching back again. So these guys are exhausted. A third of them can't even continue. They're so exhausted. So then David and his men, uh, they leave 200 men uh, at the brook. They, they're too weak even to cross over the brook. And David and 400 men, they cross over, and they, they finally encounter this young man, nearly dead, who happens to have been a slave of one of the Amalekite soldiers. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, think of how different this young man's experience with David would be in comparison with his Amalekite master. 
They left him for dead. David nurses him back to health. But this guy happens to know a lot of information about the missing women and children because he was there when the Amalekites raided the flag. And so he, he tells David everything. And, and so now David knows what to do and he knows where he needs to go. And, and I, if you think about it, just take a step back at everything that's happened in these last, uh, in this little march. I mean, it seems like David is a really lucky guy, right? I mean, yeah, the city was raided, but they didn't kill anybody. That's nice. And they found a guy in the wilderness who knew exactly where to go. I mean, David sure is a lucky guy, right? Do you remember the story of Esther? You read through the book of Esther. I I forget how many chapters it is. You could probably read it in one sitting. Not one mention of the name of God in the book of Esther. It's the only book of the Bible, I think, that that is like that. Not one mention of God's name, and yet his fingerprints are all over the book. You remember Esther. Esther was a, a beautiful young Jewish girl living in exile under the shadow of the Persian Empire. She lives in the capital city, and one day a palace servant finds her uh, you know, out in the marketplace or something and sees her and drags her into the harem where she learns that she's about to marry the king. Now, we're not told whether she even consented to that or not, but that was her situation. Meanwhile, an evil man named Haman, who happens to be a distant relative of these Amalekites, by the way, he's an Agagite. Remember King Agag from earlier on in the book? Uh, Haman plots to have all the Jews killed, all the ones living throughout the Persian Empire, and Esther's cousin happens to hear about it, and he happens to tell her And she happens to have favor with the king, which was not likely. And she happens to get an audience with him so she can blow the top off of the whole scheme and send Haman to the gallows that he had built in order to destroy the people of God in the first place. And all this stuff just happens to take place. I wonder how. Not once is God's name mentioned in the entire book, but it is so obvious and so clear that it is God himself, the God of Israel, the God who who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He was the same God who providentially protected God's people in the time of Esther, and the same is true in the life of David. We read this story, and it may not be as obvious to us as it should be that it must have felt completely out of control. David was helpless. His family was helpless. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. And yet there's this powerful, sovereign Lord overseeing every detail. I mean, how likely would it have been that 400 men would walk up in the desert to a dying slave who was willing to help them? David isn't lucky. He just enjoys the favor of the God who never fails. He's steered by God's providence. I mean, think about it in terms of your own life. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, think back to all the different times that God has guided you through, that God's rescued you from your circumstances, that he's saved you through a situation, that he's protected you from sin. I mean, hasn't he done it over and over and over again? You talk to anybody who's been walking with Christ for decades, they'll tell, they could tell you dozens of times that God has done this very thing. Does he always do that? in the timing that you want him to do that? No. Does he always do it in the way that you expect? Almost never. But he does it. 
He cares for his people. You're worried right now. You don't know what to do. You can't sleep. You can't concentrate when your children are talking to you. You're anxious. But that worry isn't helpful and it's not necessary because it's not, that's not the thing that's going to help you through the circumstance. It's the God who providentially protects his people. And this is the way God's king is. He's not like the kings of the world who kind of take care of themselves. No, God's king is steered by God's providence. He took care of David, and he can take care of you as well. God's king is strengthened by God's promise. He's steered by God's providence. Thirdly, notice that God's king is successful through God's power. God's king is successful through God's power. In verses 16 through 20, uh, we learn that this slave guides them to the place where the Amalekites are, are staying. Uh, but again, 400 exhausted ragamuffin soldiers, they're going to take on this professional band of mercenaries, probably more than a 1,000 of them, and God takes care of that too. Notice verse 16. When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So in other words, these Amalekite raiders, they thought that they were scot-free. They thought that they had gotten away with it, right? They were just letting loose. They probably slaughtered a bunch of the choicest animals, so they're filling up on steak and, and, and uh, brisket and stuff, and they broke into the finest wine and the strong drink, and they're just letting loose, and they're partying. They're, they're dancing. They're carousing. They're making eyes at some of the women in, that they had captured and thinking, man, that, that one might be a good wife for me, and they're having fun, and they're cutting up, and their weapons are strewn around the camp, and they're stowed away in their tents, and David and his men had plenty of time to surround the camp and swoop in, and tent by tent, they take out the enemies of God. By the way, uh, I think this is an, an, an illustration, isn't it, of the inherent foolishness of wickedness. The conflict between good and evil is not an equal conflict. We think of it that way, but it's not. But if you look at the history of the Amalekites, you see they just never get it. Every single instance in which in the Old Testament the Amalekites are going up against the people of God, they're doing these foolish things. Uh, they're always going up against God and his people, and every time they learn when it's too late that you can't presume upon God. So David takes care of business. They start rounding up the prisoners. Not one of them has been lost. They're all recovered. Not only that, but they start tallying up the spoils, and, and somehow... David and his men are now wealthier than they were before this whole thing started. So what that means is that through the power of God, David and his men, uh, God, God made them more successful than they had been even before this whole thing started. So God took an evil circumstance and he turned it to their good. Folks, David is God's king. He routes the enemies of God. He rescues the enslaved. He's the kind of king who's strengthened by God's promises. He's steered by God's providence. And through God's power, he's going to be successful. In other words, the point is this, folks. God's way is going to win. God's king is going to be victorious. And, and we must, we must be on his side. In the fourth place, God's king shares with God's people. God's king shares with God's people. 
Beginning in verse 21, David and his men return with their wives, the spoils of their campaign. Uh, the men who are too exhausted to join in the battle, uh, they actually get a, a full share of the spoils through David's generosity. Keep in mind, everybody's house is burned up back in Ziklag, but they come away wealthier. David steps in. He shows the character of God's king. Uh, verse 20 tells us this is David's spoil, but in verse 23, we see that David wants to share generously, and then when they return to their city and everyone's rebuilding, David shares again. He sends some of the spoils to the elders in Judah. Listen to this. In Bethel, Ramoth, Jatir, Aror, Sifmoth, Eshtemoah, Rakal, the cities of the Jeremielites, the cities of the Kenites, Hormah, Borashan, Athak, and Hebron. Now, I don't know if you know where those places are. I don't know where any of those places are. But I think about the amount of those gifts and the amount of resources it would take without FedEx or UPS. You know there's no FedEx or UPS back then. Or, or postal service, whatever. So the amount of resources it would take just to take those gifts to those cities. David is being very generous. I mean, I've never given a gift to a city before, but I imagine it's probably the custom that a city would get a bigger gift than an individual would get. This isn't just a fruit basket for the mayor. David didn't... He, he was probably sending precious metals and spices and fine clothing and livestock and grain, like really valuable stuff. David's, David's a generous man. God's king shares with God's people. Now, what difference does that make? So what? David's strengthened by God's promise. Good for him. That sounds like something we should do too. David steered by God's providence. Must have been nice that God took care of him like that. Successful through God's power, awesome. I mean, it's wonderful to be successful. We all would like that. He shares with God's people, nice guy, so what? But each one of these accounts in the book of 1 Samuel is included for a very specific reason. And in this case, David's actions are like an echo of something that's happened in the past. In other words, this story here in 1 Samuel chapter 30 it sort of rhymes with what God's people have experienced throughout the history of the people of God in the Bible. It follows what my former pastor, Jim Hamilton, calls a promise-shaped pattern. Uh, uh, we just read about it earlier in the service, and Melanie, she got through all those names from Genesis 14 uh, really well. She pronounced them all correctly, like we were all cheering for her. And you were probably thinking, why did we read about Abram and Lot, and about how God rescued, uh, God used Abram to rescue Lot from these people in Damascus. Like, what does that have to do with anything? But I hope you can see now that Abram and David are doing the same thing. A wicked king with a weird name, uh, his name is Cater Laomer captures Lot's family, their entire city. Abram gets this band of 318 fighters. He pursues them far to the north, rescues the enslaved, routs the enemy, ends up richer as a result, and then he takes the spoil and he distributes it, distributes it to his comrades. The same type of thing happens later in the book of Exodus. Remember what happens in Exodus. Moses gathers the people of God, and then in, in sort of a different way, 
He, he tells them, go to your Egyptian neighbors and, and, and ask them for their jewelry and their precious metals, and they give that to the people of God just through God's miraculous oversight, and the people get all those treasures from the land of Egypt, and then God leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and God's enemies are destroyed in the Red Sea. So there's this rhyming pattern, right? Here's Abraham, he rescues his family, God's people, and, and takes the spoils and destroys the enemies of God. Moses leads God's people to plunder the enemy and rout the enemy and rescues the people of God. David routes the enemy and he rescues the enslaved. He rescues his people. See, there's this pattern. David's following in the footsteps of these great men of old, men on whom the anointing and the promise of God rested heavily. And the reason, I, reason I'm pointing out this pattern is because it's, a, it's an historical paradigm that has its fulfillment in somebody besides David. You know who? Jesus, right? I mean, think about what Jesus talked, how Jesus talked about his own ministry, when he describes his ministry in the world, he reminds us that he's not just a teacher. He's not just a sage spouting wisdom. No, Jesus is a warrior. He talks about a, a, a strong man. Uh, if you want to rob a strong man's house, you can't just go in and take whatever you want. What do you have to do? You have to bind the strong man, and then you can plunder his house. That's what Jesus teaches. And we find out as the story goes along, Satan is the strong man. Christ binds the devil, he breaks his power, and then he begins to plunder his house. He carries away the souls that the enemy had illegitimately hoarded for himself. Paul speaks of this ministry as well. Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father came only after he had descended to the lower parts, namely the earth. And when he was here, when he was ministering, when he was obeying and living and dying and rising, it was like one chain after another was being wrapped around that great dragon and he was binding Satan and he came into Satan's house and he bound him and he carried away the treasure that Satan had stolen and distributed those gifts to his holy church. Peter reminds us of this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he tells us that Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit and proclaimed victory over the spiritual powers so that when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he had brought all of us out of bondage and all the spiritual powers were subjected to him. So there's this pattern, folks. What I'm saying is that David's act of triumphant rescue is just a shadow of a greater victory that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to accomplish over a greater foe. Christ raced into the world, entered the kingdom of Satan, knowing that the whole world lay under the power of the evil one, and he waged a great war against the devil. And if you read through the Gospels, you can see Satan tried everything to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this rise in demonic activity. They're all ready for him. If we can take this one out, we will win. If we can destroy the perfect image of God, we will destroy all of humanity. And so Satan wages this great war against the Son of God. All of his armies are there, inflaming the greed of Judas, the jealousy of the chief priests, the fearfulness of Pilate, and Satan and all the powers of hell egg on every crack of the whip and every pounding of the nails, and they Rejoice, they dance with delight as the Son of God, the perfect image of the Father, hangs on that mangled stake. Satan feels like he is about to win. 
And when Christ breathed his last, it was though Satan, that old serpent, opened his venomous jaws to swallow whole the Son of God. But instead of devouring the image of God, he swallowed the hook of his own pride. The curse was complete. The condemnation was lifted. Christ was raised. The devil was defeated so that all those who had been captured, who had been shackled, who had been enslaved to do the will of the enemy of God could be set free. And Christ the Savior took all of these captives, all of this spoil, and he brought it out of that strong man's house and said, you're free. You're free. Christ, the son of David, defeated the devil, rescued the slaves, and returns with the spoils of war. And one day he will not only have accomplished the victory, he will claim it, and Satan will be forever cast away. Folks, I've said it before, but when we read a story like this here in 1 Samuel 30, it's important that we, we enter the story and we see where we stand in the story. So where do you see yourself today? The default is to compare ourselves to, some, to the main character, right? To compare ourselves to David. And that's legitimate. David sets a wonderful example of faith in this passage. But if you're a believer today, what I would want you to consider is this. You were one of those captives. Like those young sons and daughters of the soldiers of David. Carried away by the enemy. Enslaved and ready to be sold for good. Christ came and defeated the devil so that he might tear away your shackles and bring you safely into his service. So what I'm saying, believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, is that you, you yourself, are the spoils of Christ's holy war. Think about that. You are his reward you are his spoils. This is the, you're a trophy of his grace and his great might. This is the point of your life. And you bring him glory and you bring him honor, not by being perfect, not by not ever having needed to be rescued, but by recognizing where you came from and recognizing just how amazing, how wonderful, how great it was that Jesus set you free and that he rescued you and, and remembering every moment of every day, he saved my life. He saved me. He did that which I could never repay. And when you get that, when you understand that, if you think about yourself as somebody who woke up one morning, heard horses galloping towards you from the distance, they barge into your house, they chain you, and they drag you and your children away, and you are about to be enslaved, and then someone comes and rescues you out of that, and that is what Christ did. And when you get that, it's like, what's reasonable for me would be to just make my life a living sacrifice to God. That is my reasonable service. Christ is the victor. You are the spoils. But here's what's wonderful about that. You're also the ones he gave the gifts to. It's like Christ the warrior entered into that great house filled with plundered treasures. He found the head of the house, Satan. He said, Satan, you're done. He binds Satan, and then he walks around the house, and he says, that treasure... That doesn't belong here. He needs to come with me. 
That treasure, that doesn't belong in the kingdom of Satan. She needs to come with me. And he gathers all these captives, and he brings them out of the strong man's house, and, and he sets the treasure free. You're the treasure. And when he leaves that house with the spoils of war, and he gives these gifts, these wonderful treasures to his people, just like David does at the end of chapter 30. And Christ takes all the spoils of war, of his holy war, you, and he gives you to you, to the church. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. He descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he took captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And so what you need to remember, Christian, is that you're like that enslaved person who God took out, Christ took out of slavery to Satan, and he gave you as the spoils of his holy war to his church. You are God's gift to God's church. What a high calling. What is the gift? You are the gift. Who does Christ the warrior give the gift to? To the church. And as I look out across this room, I see dozens and dozens of people who were enslaved, who were dead in trespasses and sins. I love that we sung that song before I preached. And and God's taken you out of that slavery to sin, and he's put you in the church so that you might be a blessing and a gift to the people of God. And I recognize that some of you might not feel very much like a gift to everybody else today, but that's what you are. So what does that mean? Let's be thankful. Let's rejoice in that. Let's be that gift to the church. Let's not be like David's soldiers who went with him on the raid. They did all these wonderful feats of strength, and then they came back and they grumbled and were selfish. Let's not be like them. Let's be like the freed slaves, grateful to our warrior king. Say, where am I in this story? Maybe you're uh, like one of those freed slaves. Maybe you're like that Egyptian slave. He had been in the service of the enemy for, three, for, for years. And when he was worn out, when he was useless to the enemy, he was cast aside and left to die in the dirt. And maybe the enemy's done that with you today. But I'm telling you, even this slave who, who was lying there, he was as good as dead. When he encountered David, when he encountered God's king, he was revived. And I'm here to tell you today that if you are lying there dying in the dirt, you just need to meet God's king. You need to meet God's king and be rescued from the slavery to sin. Ask yourself, where am I at in this story? And then respond. See, David is our example. He's God's king. But more than that, he is an example of our greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ, our warrior king, to whom we must be thankful, to whom we must submit, to whom we must believe.